0: Welcome back. Part two, classic replay episode, Dennis Rosen, right here on the Campo Jibble History Podcast. Before we get to that, of course, it's OJ90 week. You know what I'm going to talk to you about. If you haven't got your tickets, if you haven't booked your hotel, go to oj90.com. Book it. Book it. Do it. Get it done. If we know your name and we know your street address, but we don't have an email address for you, guess what? I mailed you a postcard today. So look forward to that. Look right in your mailbox. You might be getting a postcard in the next day or two telling you all about OJ90. So get that taken care of. That'll be enough of that. Let's go ahead and get to the show. Here we go. Classic replay. Dennis Rosen, part two, the Campo Ojibla history podcast. Chicago,
1: Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago I will show you around I love it that you bottom dollar You lose the blues In Chicago, Chicago The town that Billy Sunday Couldn't shut down Did you
0: have any idea that that was coming? No, I was...
1: uh, Not only did I not have an idea, it wasn't something I even thought about. I mean, I just... I, I never thought... That I would have camp offered to me. Uh, I was at camp for years and years and years 25 years. I started in '59, uh, so in '85 I was my 26th or seventh year. And I just was happy being me, you know. I loved doing, I was really good at doing what I was doing. Uh, I loved challenging myself, I loved challenging others. Uh, I never s- spent time worrying about what was going to happen when Al retired. I thought that that would be up to Mickey to decide what he wanted to do. Or sure. If if they want to hang on until their children were old enough to try and run it, you know, that was, it, it was a family camp.
0: So there were no, it, there were no signs that it was, oh, you know, in the past couple of years, it seems like people are getting tired or anything like that. It just sort of was...
1: Mickey always told me that he would be at camp as long as Al would be at camp. Uh, I never asked him, does that mean if Al retired, you wouldn't be here? I never asked that question. Yeah. That was That's
0: not my business. Sure, of course. Of course. So how does it all go down? How does how does it all come to be?
1: Uh, Al and Mickey called me in their office and said that Al's going to retire and they're going to sell camp. You're still at camp that mm-hmm. year? It's summer of 85. Okay. And they thought that uh, they wanted to give me – Uh, The opportunity to see if I would like to buy it and they had some thoughts about uh, my being able to raise the money and they knew that another fellow named Scott Levenfeld was very interested in this so they offered offered Scott and I the opportunity for the right of first refusal Hmm. then uh, Scott and I continued to talk and it became increasingly clear that he wanted to be a co-director, but hmm. that he wasn't going to give up his law practice. I see. And so I got a little uncomfortable with that. You know, I don't mind him being a co-director, but I wouldn't mind him coming up to camp and being a director when he's not there all the time in terms of sure. telling people stuff and so on. So Scott understood what I was saying. You know, I, I looked at it as like a two-headed monster. Mm-hmm. And... Scott and I were real close, very close. And uh, so I said to Scott, uh, come on up here and we'll sit down with Al and we'll ask him to pick one of us to go first. Okay. And Scott uh, felt that there's no reason for him to come up. Let's get Al on the phone. Hmm. So Al got on the phone and I would let Scott do the talking. And he said, Al, uh, Dennis and I have uh, agreed that it would be in best interest for one of us to be the director. And you need to choose which one goes first. And Al said, Dennis has worked for me for 25 years. He'll have the right of first refusal.
0: Fair enough. And so then what happens next?
1: Now the reality is that I have an opportunity to buy camp uh I they had established a deadline of September 1st okay my dad lived in Florida he died August 10th. Oh. Rachel started of college at the University of Michigan at the end of August. <laughs> so just a couple things going on. <laughs> I had 75 appointments in 10 days. I had gone down to Florida to see my dad to goodbye. Camp was over. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I had. I think camp was over on August 10th. That year, so I had like 21 days or 20 days. But I was also teaching. So uh, during the summer, uh, Elliot and I and uh, Bob Kaufman uh, developed a business prospectus and uh, to try and raise money. They thought it would be a cinch. Was no cinch. The banks, the local banks, were not uh, giving big loans. Interest rates were between 18 and 22 percent.
0: Thanks for economics.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, and we bought camp for X number of dollars. Right. But I had to raise the money, I had to show L. And the reason is because there has to be an established period of time. Where if I'm not going to be able to do it, somebody else would, so that there can be you yeah. know, a succession, right? To to try and stay open, the following. Right, you years. have to
0: recruit kids. You have to get the next summer ready. yeah. So
1: up to this time, though, camp had gone from a high of 240 kids or something to the enrollment dropping like 10, 15 kids every year. Mm. So the enrollment got dropped down to you know 200, 180. 170, 165, 145. You know, the aroma was going down. And it was obvious to Al that it needed uh, new blood. It needed a transfusion if it was to continue to exist. So we developed a business perspective and basically what it turned was, give me your money and you'll have no safe zone running camp. (laughs) uh, Sure. It's pride of ownership. And in return... I will do all I can to revitalize camp and keep it alive. The worst-case scenario is I'm able to do it. We sell camp, and you would get your money back plus the profit because the land was worth more than the business. Right. But I had to have enough money to, to buy it. So originally we said, well, we'll have – we try to get a loan through the banks and everything. I wasn't able to get a loan. So we had uh, investors at $25,000, and it was pretty obvious that uh, that wasn't going to work. If, if you were a potential investor and you had to show this to your business accountant, hmm. uh, they would say, wait, let me make sure I understand this. This guy wants you to give him $25,000, and you have no say-so in anything. That's a great deal for him. And I would say it's not for me, it's for camp. I'm not making any money off of this thing. Right. I, I actually made less when I owned the camp than when I worked at the camp. Mm. Wow. When I first started, you know, yeah. I, I didn't, I just wanted the camp to survive. So I'd have one appointment after another, and then and then it was pretty obvious we were going to run short. Tried, all, all these people with all their, you know, couldn't get out of state, couldn't get local banks to invest in out of state uh, real estate. Mm. The local banks weren't large enough at that time to meet the regulations about how much they could loan. Hmm. Then we said that okay, if you come in at one and a half, one and one half times thirty-seven five hundred, you could be on the board. Okay. Or if you want to split it with someone at twelve five each, then you can come in with twelve five, find someone that's acceptable, and so on. Okay. Um, still didn't have a mortgage. And so uh, it's hard to believe, but I only raised about half the amount.
0: Hmm.
1: Then I ha- then I ran into a camp family, who, and he was a pretty brilliant br- business guy. Of all the guys that were brilliant in this thing, he didn't have an emotional attachment to camp. Hmm. But he had a tremendous business sense. He loaned me... Uh, let's say, $400,000. And he held a mortgage. And if Kemp failed, he had it made. Mm, Totally.
0: Right. (laughs) Right.
1: But that was okay with with him if it failed. You know, it was a strictly business investment on his part. So now I had enough money. But we also, he also gave us, we had him sign a right of first refusal because the interest rates that we were paying if we had gone through the bank, were too high. His interest rate was, at the low end of what the banks were asking, maybe 18%. Mm. You know, still yeah. a lot on your money. So our first year, we had 105 kids. Okay. And uh, I was working, teaching, and coaching. I had to retire from coaching. I would go to work, come home, and go out on camp calls. And in those days, it, it was only eight weeks, right?
0: So um, it was a grind. It was, it was a grind. Do that when you're going to a camp call at that time. I mean, is there? Do they understand that there's a carryover that you've been there all these years, or is it? Are they looking at it like it's a new place? Like, no. Do you understand the, what I'm saying?
1: I didn't want it to be a new place. Right. I wanted it to be the same place, only upgraded. You know, the the, the next. Generation of same place like when when you had a dial phone that was against the wall and then each generation adds something whether it's bells or whistles or toys or whatever sure. I wanted it I think the concept of what Ojibwa stood for still stands absolutely whether it was the first day or and that's another reason for our success is the continuity uh, of what goes on it you know it's not the changes it's the refinement of what we do mm-hmm. you know it's uh, I think that separates Ojibwe from the rest of the camps.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you that. Know,
1: in the history of Ojibwe, what, two main directors, now two more, but uh, okay. that, that no, I didn't want it to change. I wanted to make it better. I wanted to take what we
0: had and let it grow from there. So that first year you've got 105 kids, yeah. and you've sweated every one of them. You've gone out and...
1: Every one of them, yeah. everything on my own. I did all the recruiting. I had a, I one family... Uh, who was in the restaurant business, and he wanted to help. So he gave me all of his—I did all the food ordering, too. Hmm. So he gave me for all of his restaurants all of his food purchases so I'd have some idea of what the costs are. Well, I had independently done that. Compared my prices to his prices, I saved him a million dollars <laughs> because he, he, he was having buyers. But ah. the buyers didn't negotiate. Ah. nice now I had some problems with negotiations you know camp was losing money every year uh, from the beginning the first five years we lost a lot of money and so I went to some of our purveyors whether they were the bus driver you know the bus company and, and would tell them you know loyalty is a great thing I don't want to have to seek bids for our buses or get a lower price could you match you know keep your prices at a certain level until we were able to have our head above water yeah and it didn't always sit well with some people so along the way I had to make decisions on what was best for camp
0: sure but that I mean but you were you were fighting a fight I mean it wasn't there was no assurance that camp was going to be there
1: and also, this is how I develop a negative attitude toward the American Camping Association. My first year of camp, we had to have an evaluation. You know, every three years, you get evaluated for accreditation. Sure. I, I asked Guardy to apply for me for a one-year extension based upon the fact that I'm trying to survive. i got to take all my energy and time and put it into camp. They refused it. Hmm. That's why I never uh, went out of my way for them.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean I think that it's hard for someone to think of that now, you know, kids, especially the guys who are at camp today, they just think camp's always going to be there. There was never a question, why would it why would there ever be an issue? There's always going to be plenty of kids to go to the camp even if we have competitors or whatever. But 85 to 90, 86 to 90 was really touch and go. Uh
1: yeah. But then we started to do, you know, do a little better every year. Uh, after 4 years, the interest rates dropped about 12%. And the local banks could now, would now give a loan because they had merged and they became bigger and their mm. loaning power was uh, greater. So I went to the original guy and asked him, you know, would you like to continue on? You have the right of first refusal at the slower rate, and he said, no. Uh, if without me, you never would have had camp, and uh, I, I think I'll just, you know, let you re- refinance it and take my profits. <laughs> In four years, he made $250,000 profit. He was paid back $650,000. That's
0: all right.
1: Yeah, because he was so smart.
0: Yeah. Would have, You know, uh, couldn't have other people done that? You would think it would be just that easy. Right. But he gambled, too. I mean, he gambled on... He had, why was it a gamble well, when he had right. the property? Right.
1: That's true. That's what I'm saying. The, the guy, what did he have to lose? Right. They had only to gain. So we refinanced the loan then. Oh, I had to have a second fund. I had to try and raise more funds. Um, I wanted to have $100,000 over the amount of money that was necessary to purchase camp to exist for X number of years. I mean, I knew that if I couldn't get this thing turned around in four to five years, that we wouldn't continue. right. And uh, and I was doing everything. I mean, everything. Sure. In uh, we refinanced the camp, and in 1994 we went to a four-week option. We were the last camp. Oh. All the camps had already gone to four weeks as an option. Hmm. We were still holding out. But then what happened is that uh, we were losing kids because they wanted to come to to Ojibwe, but it was only eight weeks. And they, just, they either couldn't afford camp or they had other responsibilities. Right.
0: The four-week option is probably the most significant change to the success of camp, one would assume. I mean, whether it's specialty camps that are taking them away or high school practices or just being able to afford camp, whatever it is, it's probably the single biggest change.
1: Well, you even see camps now struggling. You know, they go to two-week options. More and more camps are now going to two weeks. Sure. So in 98, we paid off our mortgage completely, and we were debt-free from 98 on. Nice. Very nice. Yeah.
0: So along that way, from 86 to 98, what are some of the other changes that get implemented that help, help as you said, refine, help revitalize? what Camp Ojibwe had been into what it is today?
1: Well, we took the JCs out of Watermelon League and paid them and uh, made them staffed. And uh, they were still waiting tables, but they weren't playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see their general, you know, I mean, they loved camp, but it wasn't the same. They weren't having as much fun sure. doing that. And I uh, cut out the dad's lodge completely. And made it into Cabin 14. Uh, I cut it out for two reasons. One, I I didn't think that having parents around camp uh, was a good idea. I, they interfered. Some of them they would watch your kids
0: play. They would argue with you. It, it wasn't just not what it should be. Right. Camp is about independence. I mean, it's one of the top mm-hmm. things we're doing there.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and it's okay to fail at camp, but it's just not okay not to try. Right.
0: You In know, secondary- to me, if a
1: kid's not trying, the biggest punishment I can give him is just to have him sit there and watch a game. Hmm. See how much fun that is? <laughs> sure. You know, because you know I do those types of things. Yes. You don't want to play, you don't have to play. But you'll have to sit and watch.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right, good job. So you got rid of the dads. That was part one, but part two was also establishing the this. Kids
1: yeah. Instead of two years and thirteen into fourteen, and fourteen to me was like an appropriate thing because it's their building. You know, it's it symbolizes something. It's off the campgrounds. It's a beautiful place. We have more freedom of doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And, it was great.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a palace, sort of. But Well, for kids. For the, the kids, camp. right. They get. I mean, between the... They have a TV. They have their own rooms. They have the, the go-karts downstairs. They have the showers inside with the bathrooms. I mean, it really... They kind of have the keys to the kingdom. But what we're doing, and again, it goes back to the self-esteem. We're giving them the respect to say, you're a 16-year-old. You have earned your way... You were at the top of the camper chain. Correct. But you're also now learning to be a leader so that next year you can come back and be a staff man. And that's... But That's we where also you're going we to.
1: also said that in order to be an officer, you had to be in fourteen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, uh, I, that was a big change. Um, what other changes? Uh, try to refine the program. Added more leagues.
0: Right. The stru- so the the structure of the day changes a little bit, right? So you get right. away from like sort of instruction sport to sport 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 rec sport. No. Sometimes sport. No. Sometimes. It's basically six periods a day. Right. Of the
1: six periods a day, one's instruction, one is rec period, uh, one is a free choice period, one is a late night period, and two are dedicated to team sports. Now, depending on the weather, that may change. Sure. Because the idea was to have one period every day for the waterfront. Uh, one period where you could pre-choice. One period where the whole camp did something together. That was the structure of what I wanted. You know, uh, not, it, it didn't always adhere to that, because if the weather was too cold, they wouldn't go down the waterfront. Sure, of course, so but that was so the forth. general philosophy. Yeah, that was the general thing.
0: Um, you moved Collegiate Week.
1: Yeah, I'll never wanted to have Collegiate Week the last week at camp. And the reason was he didn't want kids to go home feeling like if they lost it wasn't not a successful thing but since everything has changed philosophically if they go home feeling like they were losers then we have failed in our mission it's okay to go home because you lost but it's not okay to go home because you were a loser right you're only a loser if you quit
0: and that has, much, that has to do with the previous seven weeks, not the previous seven days.
1: So uh, it's a great end to camp.
0: Right. And it also made the second four weeks a feasible time for, for a camper to come. If, if Collegiate Week were still the seventh week, it would be really not feasible for a camper to come up for just the second four. Right, They would have no, basically, it would be terrible. So you move Collegiate Week. You change the picking structure so we're not picking in front of everyone. I did that
1: early. I did that early.
0: Now, don't don't we still pick like so many rounds though in front of people for a while? That's what. I maybe.
1: Yeah, for a
0: while. Yeah, before it moved to the war room, which is what we do today.
1: And uh, but we, I stopped letting them pick teams in front of kids, whether it's preach league teams and so on. Yeah, we did. You know, that's when we got the league commissioners, and they would do their own teams or whatever.
0: Yeah. So those are just that's some of the changes that you made that. Usher in this new era Oh and the Olympics The Olympics are new
1: Well, well we went to a four week program You know I had told you earlier that How the Children's Spartans started When we went from an eight week camp To a seven week camp Back to an eight week camp Well we went to two four week camps Two four week sessions uh, I wanted to do something The first four weeks that were exciting And the other thing is We always had two swim meets And two track meets. Hmm. But the first ones were awful. (laughs) But kids wouldn't try and this and that, you know. And the reason we had it is so they can be scouted for a collegiate week. I said, well, how the hell are we going to make the first four-week swim meet and track meets fun? I said, well, we'll have an Olympics.
0: Nice. And it grew from there. Yeah. And the original Olympics were... Uh, Native American tribes. Correct. Before we did countries, yeah. it was the tribes. Right. And that went for a few years. I still
1: have the signs somewhere for those. In my closet, maybe. Yeah. That would be a neat thing to have.
0: That would be great for the museum. Absolutely. So now we get into that period of, we hit 94, and because of the four-week program, camp begins to grow significantly. So now instead of adding... 15 or 20 a year you've you've slowly built up but now there's an exponential growth and from 94 till about 2003 when we really max out we have a a session which i still say was over 300 now you tell me i'm wrong but second session 90 never had 300. Second session of 2003 i believe there were 307 kids so that brings about the expansion of the rec hall and the mess hall because that's 2001 when those get expanded i know to fit all those kids in the point being that 94 starts a population explosion with camp that, that crests in the early 2000s. Along with that, you've changed the JC program so that they're not playing in leagues. And for a period of time, that made it less, less interesting to a certain group who had always, you know, there's a certain group who had kind of grown up and seen it a certain way, and they said, oh, we don't like change. We don't want to necessarily do that. So what happened, this is the important part, is that starting about 94, you had a larger need for staff and a smaller amount of staff that were coming back. So you had to now start looking for staff elsewhere. And I think this is another piece of the puzzle of camp success that can't be ignored. And it starts with you because you're the one who now is going to other venues to hire staff. And whether it's international staff working with Camp USA and uh, the, what's the other one?
1: Well, there were a lot of them. We, we worked with the Jewish organization. That's how we got to
0: Mare. Right. Right. Um, The Kramer's finding Glenn Crawford. And so tell me a little bit about that process, because from 94 until about 2002, you're still hiring a significant amount of just either college guys or guys who are working in the world, not homegrown guys. And I
1: don't remember. I remember going to a lot of college recruitment fairs, summer recruitment fairs, Uh, all the kitchen staff in the early days, was all Americans. Oh, believe me. I've, staff. I've been told
0: that many times.
1: Um, but then it became um, more... There was an influx of the opportunities to hire international staff because more agencies were doing it. Now it's getting harder again because of all the restrictions of travel and sure. vetting and finding out, you know, the, uh, all the crazy people in the world. Right. So now it's getting harder again. And it's more restrictive again. So uh, I don't, I uh, I guess I tried to sell to the JCs the fact that, that ready for their next phase of camp, they will be paid. Sure. They might have gotten half of a salary before to wait tables, but they got, you know, the other part is they got to play. And that their, um, their enjoyment has to come from leading others now coaching others. Right. It's time you take the next phase of your life.
0: Well, I think that is a very natural progression. It, specific to the JCs, that's just one of those camp things where people don't like change. Whatever the change is, they're like, no, we've always done it this way, we want to do it this way, so people oh, I, I, can be resistant to change.
1: The, the, <laughs> the, the thing is, is that it's the nature of my personality to uh, embrace the response for change. You know, sure. I, I know when I change the yellow bench to the collegiate bench. <laughs> sure. What? That's a big one. <laughs> oh, it's huge. It's huge. And, it, like, to me, when, when that happens, it's bring it on. <laughs> you know, tell right. me I'm wrong. Well, you're not wrong, but it's not tradition. <laughs> I say we're establishing a new tradition. There's right. some things that, you know. We don't do the Jubilee like we used to do the Jubilee. We don't do a lot of things like we used to do. That doesn't mean they weren't right. And now a big change is trying to be more sensitive in terms of understanding other people's cultures. Sure. <laughs> that was a huge change.
0: That is a big change. Let's. I want to get there. Let's get there in a minute. I want to stick with this for just a point, though. Um, but this, I think that this change... By having less JCs come back for a period of time until that rolled over, and, and then by by the time we get to 2003, that's when the kids who started in 94, we're talking about Asher Winning, he is really like the poster child for that age group. But they are the first gigantic age group because that's the four-weekers start to come in, and by the time they get to Cabin 14, it's 35 kids in Cabin 14, which was all we could handle. We could- really? We literally, we put three kids in one room on the yeah. porch.
1: I remember one year we only had four or five. I think the bomb kids, they lived in the back of the yeah. counselor's lodge. Absolutely. So it, they,
0: were, they really were the beginning of this huge explosion. And by the time they got there, they all stayed. They just kept coming back. They weren't dropping off along the way. And so then you have those 35 kids turned into... 27 JC's right. suddenly have a huge influx of JC's and the five and the group right behind them. Same thing. I think the largest number of JC's we ever had was 32 or something. It illustrates this point that, but before those two groups hit it, from that point on to even now, we've had a huge, um, we've had plenty of JC's to go around. We rarely are, are skimping on JC since that point, but in between those two we were. And so you had to get me more creative with staffing and suddenly you were hiring not just international guys, but also college guys that, were a big in, a group of p- guys who influenced camp in a big way. It starts with Tamir, Glenn Crawford, Selwyn Butler, guys who stay for a few years or, or many, mm-hmm. many years and become very influential in camp. J.D., J.T., Cody, myself, you know, this whole crew. I think that period of time and your creativity in, in bringing those guys into the camp helped make a more rounded camp.
1: Think about the names that you just uh, threw out there. Repeat them.
0: So, Tamir, uh, Tamir Rahman, Glenn Crawford, Selwyn Butler, I'd put Daniel Lennon on that list as well. Uh, JT, Julius Demons, JD, JD, Cody, Cody Brown, yourself, myself. Wh- what's one thing they
1: have in common? Well, none of them are campers. Okay, what's another thing they have in common? We're all they have dashing in- gentlemen. The other thing that they have in common is that none of them have the same skills. That's true. So, what I was trying to do is to me, Ojibwe counselors are sort of like generalists. Seldom do we have an Ojibwe counselor that uh, is a specialist in the zip line. Mm. They're basically land sports guys. And I wanted to make sure that our camp had a broad based uh, background of people that I felt comfortable with. I mean, have you told your story about how you got hired? Well, I haven't, but we're, it'll come. I know, but when you think about it, it's because
0: you're what I wanted. Right. You were looking specifically for that skill set. Exactly. Absolutely. And I think that putting those pieces around the Ojibwa guys who were already there created... Right. right that created a landscape that made a, a better, well-rounded experience for every camper there. Exactly. Absolutely. So, kudos to you for that.
1: Plus, it... it uh made us much more cosmopolitan in a way it made us you know less sterile i mean it wasn't like just it's not a jewish camp it was never a jewish camp oh that was another change that i made
0: oh right uh friday
1: night services i felt very uncomfortable doing it uh as a religious experience i felt very comfortable doing it as a spiritual experience but not a religious experience you know uh I felt very comfortable doing it with consistency of a message of kindness, respect, and fair play, and mm-hmm. uh, trustworthiness. And so a lot of the things that I do are based upon those concepts of it. You know, this year's, it's called Timo Ojibwe. Together Everyone Achieves More. And then I'll hear something, and then I'll just make a flag. The T-shirts are really cool, by the way. Nice. Did you see him? Not yet. Oh, it's in red print when I agree with team Ojibwa. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Last year's was stand together, stay strong. And I found an actual uh, symbol of it. So symbolizing stuff is 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 okay, but portraying it is
0: not. Right. So let's let's move into that then. So now we get past 03 and Camp sort of realizes we don't need <laughs> To have that, but we can back off a little bit on the number of kids. There's a sweet spot. There's the right amount of kids to have at camp. Wherever it is, there's an amount that's sort of the optimum number of kids to have at camp. And I think once we said, you can disagree with me if you want, but I think... Well, I, I,
1: I think that you're missing a, a real important part that we learned on that whole thing. The optimum amount, in my mind, is how many kids could eat in the mess hall at the same time. Because when we had too many, we ate, ate in shifts. Right. And I did not like that.
0: I remember that was... Ugh.
1: That... that that drew the line for me, and I didn't want to do that anymore. Remember we used to have the th- kids come in early? Sure. you know, And I didn't like that. We have enough beds for more kids, right? but we don't have the capacity to feed them all at the same time. And I want to be able to ha- have every kid in the mess hall at the same time, even though we don't have that many sit-down meals anymore. It's just there's the opportunity to be together in that environment is too
0: important for me. Right. That's a, bi- that's a big piece of camp. Right. Having those moments of being able to, for everyone to come together. Exactly. And you go out and you do your own thing. You have your cabins, you have your sports know, or whatever, but, but still, you have that thing. So, that,
1: so when you say, you know, optimum level and so on and so forth, it's all related to the feeding. Nice.
0: Well, <laughs> so there we go. could always find beds. Right. We could always stick someone in right. a bed somewhere. And, you know, you might have to wait for a bathroom for a little yeah, while. Yeah, but, but when I made the
1: changes to the recall and the mess up, I tried to make it so no one knew about it. Mm-hmm. People that come to camp today, that something might seem a little different, but they can't pinpoint it. Mm. They can't pinpoint that there's no porch to the rec hall anymore, and, and and we could sit 120 more kids with, you know, 12 benches with 10 kids. Right. In the mess hall, when we did, uh, brought the mess hall out, and we, we could f- seat uh, uh, 5 times 10, 50 to 60 more kids that way. Yeah. Without doing anything, except we brought it out a little bit. And you can't tell unless you go to the side, because I intentionally painted right. one strip green so people remember. And people say, oh, you're going to shorten it. The guys will keep hitting the mess hall now. They still can't hit the mess hall. <laughs> You know, like a mess hall ball now is
0: 12 feet closer. Right. And still maybe on the bounce. I don't, I don't know that anyone since I've been at camp has hit one over the mess hall. There have been.
1: I, I've seen guys hit the, over the tree. Father John Smith, who was an All-American basketball player at uh, Notre Dame and uh, ran uh, St. Mary's, hmm. I saw him hit a ball over the tree in front of Cabin 13. <laughs> wow. That's we great a fellow named Mitch Rubins could hit in the water regularly.
0: Now, the old guys, I mean, the young guys like to say maybe the air was th- thinner back then. No, no.
1: no, I'll tell you what it was. Softball was more of a big sport. Right. In the early days, softball was the sport. Now basketball is the sport. Yeah. You know, most of the kids love their basketball. They just don't play a lot of baseball or softball. Though. Right. Right. It uh, still kills me when we when we'll play another camp and we, uh, we destroy them and everything and we lose softball games. I had to fire seven staff. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, they knew what they were getting into. <laughs> yeah, well, you want a coach? Pay the price. Knock yourself out. Walk back. Uh, we can blame that on Michael Jordan, though. Michael Jordan's the one who made, who made us all care more about basketball than softball. That's when the big shift happens. That's Whatever. Uh, historically. Just, uh, yeah. They want to be like Mike. Why not? Well, I think that's
1: simplification. You know the cities used to play in parks. you didn't play in gyms. You come out here now you have all these indoor facilities that are available to you. You don't have the parks.: hmm. You know, in the old days, where are you going? going in the park? What are you do? play ball? So it's, it's not as simplistic as one might think.
0: But again, more just speaks to more of the changes that, that kept camp alive and then revitalized camp and now made camp enormous. Another big change was the fact that uh, in the old days we used to have
1: nurses, but now we can have nurse assistants uh, because we have full-time doctors. Hmm. So when we build a building called the Condos, uh, that building was built to accommodate the investors originally. You know, one of the things that you got for your investment was the opportunity to come up in state camp. Right. Which in some cases is more than paid for your investment. Sure. (laughs) So when people complain about, well, why do so-and-so kids to come to camp? Well, they're in a, they're an owner. And I wanted to have an appropriate facility for them. Yeah. And that's how we built the condos. Forgot about that until, until we're talking about that. And the condos are great because it's not just guys that come up. It's they bring their wives. Mm-hmm. They, they make a nice stay of it. And also our doctors, you know, uh, Dr. Sachs. Is a tremendous asset to camp to have a full time in resident doctor. Is a tremendous asset to camp, and then our visiting physicians.
0: Our medical staff is certainly top notch, especially I mean compared to the other camps. You know, you can't compare. We often get phone calls. Hey, can we bring someone over and have you guys check them out? Um, So we get into this sort of new era. Then now camp's running smoothly, and while there are
1: never runs smoothly. (laughs) I don't. Camp is running successfully, which is different than (laughs) smoothly. Okay, okay. You know, we're having having some very successful experiences at camp, whether it's the staffing or whether it's a program or whether it's enrollment and so on. But that doesn't mean it requires a tremendous amount of vision and foresight and understanding and commitment and continuity and supervision. It's not by luck that we are where we are
0: correct absolutely that's exactly the way i would say it it's not my luck and it is because of those things you just talked about having a vision being proactive you built a safety net for camp you built a team for camp that you know if any three or four people suddenly couldn't be at camp for some reason camp doesn't just fall apart there is a structure now. There's an infrastructure there that protects camp and keeps camp being camp.
1: And how many years have these people been coming to camp, you know? All right. So I, I tried to professionalize camp. I tried to create a staff and environment. Like if I was a president, that I would have a cabinet. Mm-hmm. And for all the dogmatic feelings that other people may have of me, I've actually allowed people to make major contributory decisions regarding camp certainly and because of that they uh, have continued to come back cuz they you know they're not little denny guys or they're not little peons or it's not like you know you you're not my slave
0: right and it's investment it, it's, it goes right back to the conversation about the retreat it's the respect i trust you to do the job i hired you for i trust you if it's your spot to make this call to make the call there is no
1: one that oh. can there is no one that that could understand that better than you cuz i never even told you what your job was going to be
0: oh you mean when you didn't mention that it was a sports camp right <laughs> correct that is true that so, is true and
1: here i am so why did i hire you because i felt that that intuitively to me you possessed those types of skills attitude personality that can make the phase of camp that you have expertise in, great. Absolutely. And then when you got to camp?
0: Yeah,
1: I was a little surprised. Why? Because <laughs> it was an all-sports camp, and you're the music guy. You're the music guy. But right. it turned out okay. Yeah, but it turned, out, no, it turned out better than okay. And as you grew at camp, your responsibilities grew at camp, and your skills grew at camp, and now grew at camp, and now... I don't want you just to be a practitioner of skills. I want you to be a visionary of skills. That's the one criticism I would have of you. You spend too much time doing things instead of planning things, teaching others how to do things.
0: That's fair. So let's talk about now that era that that we're describing. Which era? Current. And making a choice, which we've touched on, but now I want to get into it a little in depth. Making a choice a couple years ago to make a significant change to camp about it was time to take other cultures into consideration and to stop using certain Native American imagery. What spurred that conversation?
1: I never liked the powwows when I saw kids putting on war paint and towels and dancing around. I didn't think that we did it. Uh, I mean, we, in our own minds, we always tried to be respectful, but that was our perception of stuff. And I tried to look at it through someone else's eyes. And I wasn't comfortable with it, hmm. and uh, I don't think we did an, uh, enough to. I mean, we we brought Ojibwa chiefs in and so on, and it, those things didn't work out. They were it was too political on their their point. It was mm-hmm. like they had a, because these were all, all you know white man's camp. No matter what I would say or do, it wouldn't satisfy him, and I get, it took me a long time to get it, hmm. and I get it now. And so I don't want to, I don't want to change our history. I'm not interested in doing that. But uh, I have a lot of concerns about portraying who we are. Who, what does Campo Chuba stand for? You know, and one of the things that it has to stand for, as long as I'm the director, is respect for all men.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you but know, it's,
1: it hasn't been met with open arms.
0: Well, change is difficult, as we've said. Not for me. <laughs> I don't disagree. I am. I completely agree that it's time to change. And to me, and maybe maybe it's not the same, but it's very similar to the minstrel show. Camp used to have a minstrel show, and at some point realized this is not.
1: You know, we're having a new mural painted at the camp campfire site. I, I do know that. <laughs> it's going to be unbelievable.
0: I can't wait to see it. Um, and it will connect to the new actor. the new officers and the way we handle the braves now so
1: uh, i was able to be fairly successful in getting people to accept the concept but the Powells are harder to do sure because one of the successes of the Powells was the visual effects right and so the people that are leading the braves now need to be very creative in doing the visual effects it was always easier when there were wars and battles and
0: Right, you're you're reenacting stories and skits. That's that's much more difficult now when you're just you know, twelve guys in regular clothes, or you know in your gear. But what it represents to camp and what the Braves as an organization represents to camp has not changed. If anything, I think this can make it stronger.
1: Well, a lot of it has to do with the concept of the big brothers now, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, everyone uh, every. Neophyte has to be a big brother to a first year camper, and uh, more leadership training, and uh, more awareness, and having the leaders, the officers, of the Braves all being fourteen, and meet with meet with the administration on it all the time, and let them feel like they're having to say so and what's going on at camp, you know, evaluate camp. Um, I we even do a discipline council with the warriors with the officers mm. of the Braves. You get, you get a child that's misbehaving and doesn't respect the Ojibwe way, you know, rather than just we ask him to come to a meeting and say, you know, how can we help you? What's going on? Why, do, why are you having these issues at camp? How are we failing to get you to understand what's going on? So it's like a, a peer counseling group that I, that I mentor. Uh, It's like student council, Mm -hmm. except they're now the officers of student council instead of being the president or the chief, and that's okay. I haven't changed any of that.
0: Yeah, I think, like I said, I I think in some ways it's actually stronger um, because when you take away, I guess for lack of a better way to say it, using that imagery is sort of a crutch, like with the powwow. You're forcing them to be more creative and in being more creative and creating what a powwow can be. We still call it a powwow, but Creating what that thing can be, the summit. I'm sorry, actually, I think yeah, they do call it the summit. The they summit. don't call it the powwow anymore. But now you have to be more creative about what a summit is and what it means. You're not just leaning on. Oh, it's just something where we tell a little story. No, now it has to. It has more meaning. Well, you know,
1: as the person that initiated all this, I don't think it would have gotten to this point if it wasn't for my insistence. I don't think. I any, agree. I don't think. Anyone else felt that what we did was inappropriate, that we did it in a disrespectful manner, and so right. on. And I never looked at it that way. I looked at it a different way. I looked at it. Do I think that somebody could interpret this as being disrespectful? And I, and I kept coming up with the answer is yes.
0: That's all. I mean, and I think that's always the difficult part of the argument is they the person will say, well, we're not being disrespectful. No, we're not. And I don't think they are. I never said they were. Right, but like you said, you have to step in someone else's shoes and say, but is that disrespectful to me whether you mean it or not? Because it, oftentimes it, you know, it can be. And that's when you have to look at yourself and say, wait a second, is that the man I want to be? The person who is that?
1: Is the, I have such a unique opportunity to be a director of a camp because it's my kingdom. And I got those kids and those staff living there on the grounds 24-7 for four or eight weeks. And I look at it as a tremendous opportunity to get them to see things, feel things, hear things that they normally wouldn't in in the real world, where they're bombarded by so many other stimulus. You know, you take away a lot of their stimulus. You take away their television. You take away their going to movies. You take away them going to their room. You know, every cabin is its own little city. Hmm.
0: Totally, totally.
1: You know, and and uh, the kids. By different ages have different needs and so i think we create levels of sensitivity and understanding in a camping environment that are hard to duplicate in any other environment and i take that responsibility very seriously
0: so moving forward you are starting to work your way toward potentially not being a camp anymore what's that like Easy.
1: The hard thing is staying. Hmm. Not leaving. It's hard to stay at camp and not be in charge. When the primary concern is always the well-being and welfare, you know. Uh, when you're responsible for over three hundred and thirty or forty lives and well-being, when I was in charge of, of the of the camp, I felt like I had you know, greater control of what goes on. Sure, it's hard to be now an advisor or observer of what's going on uh, from a, an emotional standpoint.
0: Right, because sort of stepping back from making certain decisions, but not being able to lessen your feeling of responsibility right. for everyone there, so you have you just have less control of the, of that.
1: Yeah, I've done. So I hard. think that uh, I think that I've done probably a surprisingly good job to other people by allowing uh Stu and Joel to take over. Sure. I've tried not I've tried to mentor them and bring them along. And it, it it's it's not like it's a difficult task, but it's in essence they probably would be best served by my not being there. Well, in my opinion.
0: It's transition is tough as we've said a million times today. Change at camp is hard. Right. And this is the kind of change at camp that has happened twice now. Well, it's in the middle of its second time, really. And so figuring out what that looks like, how does that transition happen, and and how does camp stay camp through that? I think that it's uh, different.
1: And I think it's different because it went from a family-owned camp to to a corporation, and so change is easier mm. from my standpoint than it would be for you know an else standpoint. Right. I don't think uh, I think I was subject
0: to much more scrutiny than Stu and Joel will be. Mm. Sure. And needed to well, and frankly, you needed to be for camp to have to survive those years we talked about. You needed to be.
1: It is what it is, you know. I have.
0: The Luckily, you were the right guy for the damn job. and
1: the torpedoes full speed. ahead. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You and
0: know. that worked out for everyone, but that.
1: Yeah. I, I love being me.
0: Yeah. But now with this, like you said, they may not be under as much scrutiny because you've created. You've created, as we said, an infrastructure that, when passing along, has made all of the transition much more easier. fluid. Absolutely. I mean, they have
1: each other to do do things. Uh, I I have absolute confidence that camp will continue to succeed.
0: Uh, Do you want to talk about this project at all?
1: The project of the uh, camp history project? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, It's it's allowed me to get my teeth involved in, in a meaty way to continue and to leave a legacy uh, for me. I mean, it's not like I'm a president that's going to have some, some library. Right. Uh, you know, like the Obama library. It's not going to be a Denny Rosen library, but there's going to be a Campo Juba history project.
0: Right. And there wasn't.
1: No, there wasn't something. And it started with you and I talking about it. It started with the passing of Diz, which really sort of lit our fires and we were both, I don't remember if you came with the, to me with the idea or I came to you, but it was a mutually thought about and shared idea uh, that has uh, taken on a life of its own. And uh, it's fantastic.
0: It's growing by leaps and bounds, this yeah, is the 50th episode. 50 weeks of new guys talking. Right.
1: Now, I haven't given you, you know, lots of stories and I haven't given you any of those things, but... Uh I didn't plan on doing those things. I wanted uh, uh I wanted this to be more of a reflective conversation.
0: Well, that's it. I have a couple questions for you. Typically about this time in an interview, I ask someone what being at camp how that affected their life. But I think the question I want to ask you is, how do you think your life would have been different if you didn't if Camp Ojibwa was never part of it?
1: I would have been successful in whatever I chose to do. It sounds so arrogant, but it's just an edge of my personality.
0: Sure. And how do you think your life is different because Camp Ojibba came into it?
1: It's richer. It's fuller. It's more involved. You know, I mean, uh, I was a teacher for a long time. I loved my relationship with my students. Uh, I love the challenge. I like the fact that people said I couldn't do it or you can't do it. You know, it's been a carryover my whole life. I was a kid. I grew up in a school that was changed from an all-white school to an all-black school. My parents got divorced when I was 13, and we moved. And uh, I used to take the streetcar every day to go back to the old school to graduate with my classmates. But mm-hmm. I started high school. I didn't know one kid in high school. You know, I was I was always small. Um, I had to fight for everything, and. Uh, What's happened is that I continue to fight with everything, but I have a more refined way of going about myself now.
0: Hmm.
1: In the old days, I wasn't quite as re- subtle. <laughs> um, people say I'm old age is settling in, but yeah. it's it's actually been a learning curve.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, I didn't I didn't fully understand the old old Denny that I never met until I some guys Started told me to, well, and some guys told me to watch the Great Santini, and I was like, oh, now I get it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what most people don't know is that most of that was uh, tongue-in-cheek by, with me. It was uh, a persona that I chose to portray and thought that it was important. May, maybe it wasn't as important as it should have been. But uh, I always felt that there has to be one leader, and I was going to be that leader. Hmm. And But that didn't mean you couldn't have a say-so. Um, and I always thought that if I gave you a compliment, it should have a lot of meaning, so I made you work for compliments. You know, I, I don't go around telling you how beautiful you are or how great you are, but, but I learned a long time ago in teaching. I used to call five students' parents every week to tell them something great about their kid, and without exception, almost every single phone call would go like this. Uh, Mrs. Thompson, this is Mr. Rosen at Ridgewood High School. Uh, I'm Chris's physical education instructor. What did he do? You know, but to have someone go out of their way to say something positive. Sure. Uh, it just conquers everything. I used to teach square dance. I hated it. I took one of the guys. I took off my straw hat. I put it on. I said, you teach it. <laughs> And they got into it, you know. So, uh, like my head is always filled with all of these sayings, confuse and conquer. That's a great strategy that I use.
0: Sure. What? I've, I've fallen prey to that many times.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, trying not to be predictable, you mm. know, trying to. Uh, I think the biggest change is trying to do the right thing and not worry about being right. That's a great mentality to have. And it's hard sometimes.
0: Yeah. Very hard.
1: So now I got trying to pass these things on to others so that it can continue. I don't want I want camp to be, and it is, a special place for everybody. If I have one kid that doesn't come back or one staff person that doesn't come back, I get upset about it. I wonder why, you know, what did we do wrong? Another thing is that I've learned to always look at myself first before I would blame others.
0: Well, as we get close to the end, um I think it would be incredibly difficult to count the number of young men whose lives you have significantly influenced in the past 60 years. I think it would be difficult to sort of easily sum up their story. But I can say for my story that I came to camp at a time when I needed something in my life. And more than even camp being that thing, you were that thing for me. And I think an incredible friendship has come out of that. And you've been the father that I didn't have anymore. And it means the world to me. So it's been an honor to have you here for this on the 50th episode. I cannot thank you enough for doing this.
1: Uh, Thanks, Chris. You know, I've tried to treat uh, you as a son, but you've earned that. You know, another thing that I tell people is that the most unfair thing you could do is to treat everyone equally because you're not. Hmm give equal opportunities to be successful. So anything that you're getting from me, you earned. I didn't give it to you. You earned it.
0: Well, I'll take that. All right. Are we good? We're good. Thank you. Okay, there we go. Part two, Dennis Rosen. I uh, I forgot about how emotional that got at the end. I, I wanted to replay this episode because of the connection to the OJ90, and I kind of forgot that we got a little sappy at the end. So, uh, all true, just, you know, a little, little syrupy. So, anyway. All right, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Christopher at Camp Swing by the website, check things out. As I mentioned last time... Bricks are going to be going away. This is going to be your last chance. We're we're going to have the brick sales open for a couple more weeks, but then that's going to be the end of it. So if you've not gotten a brick and you've heard me talk about it, and you've been like, oh, this guy, will he stop talking about the bricks? But you keep putting it off, well, you're almost out of time. So get over there and do it, CampoJiblaHistory.org, if that's what you want to do. Come back tomorrow again. It's OJ90 week, so we're getting content all week long. We're going to have a brand-new episode tomorrow, brand-new interview, one I think you're going to like. And uh, as for me... That's gorgeous. You know where I'm going. I'm going outside.